This is Vaya con Munoz with Natalia Munoz on 96.9 WHMP. Good morning, everybody. Thank you for joining me here on Vaya con Munoz. Today, we're going to be speaking with uh, Patricia Sandoval, who's a professor of communication at Holyoke Community College. She is the director of this fantastic presentation that took place a few days ago called Latinas con Pluma, Latinas with Pen. Uh, there are almost 40 Latina writers, poets, uh, playwrights, the whole gang, the whole gang of Latinas. People who live as close as Magdalena Gomez, author, playwright, poet, people who have passed on Dolores Prida, uh, an old friend of mine from my days in New York City. Um, oh my goodness, Aurora Levens, Rosario Morales, Sherie Moraga, Esmeralda Santiago, and then their local people who declaimed these writings, uh, Julissa Colón, Ticana Coto, Jocelyn Lopez, Camila Lourdes Ver, Alora Machuca, Priscilla Page, Oban Román, y Natalie Vicencio. It was such a powerful night because it was the story of all of us who are Latina, uh, especially Latinas here in this country. And this was put together by Patricia Sandoval, the professor from Holyoke Community College, who is so delightful, so kind, so generous, such a powerhouse. She's a, well, like uh, Sherie Moraga uh, wrote many years ago with a bunch of other Latinas. Patricia Sandoval is, is like this bridge called my back. She's a bridge between different cultures, li la different Latina cultures and uh, the American culture. So we're going to have a conversation with Patricia coming right up. We'll hear some of the sounds that were played at the presentation Latinas con Pluma, which was this multimedia event because it was the spoken word, there was music, there was also an exhibit called Nuestras Abuelas, Our Grandmothers. It was uh, photographs of some of the grandmothers of Holyoke, and some of the pictures were of the grandmothers when they were young. They looked to be in their 20s. And so you look at these pictures and then you read about what their grandchild says about them and you put it together. Oh, this young face here eventually became a mother and then became a grandmother and became so influential uh, one generation uh, or two generations later, no? through her own children and her grandchildren. Then we're going to speak with Larry Hott and we're going to be talking about how this current administration poses a threat to the arts including the theater arts. It's all the arts. But first, Professor Patricia Sandoval. There are 36 instances of authors, of poets, yes. In yes. being declaimed or recited, and there's music yes. also. There's a huge world of uh, Latina writers. How did, you get, how did you arrive, for instance, to Magdalena Gomez, who lives right here in Springfield, or Dolores Prida, May she rest in peace. I guess one of the reasons is that I really speak that feel that their writing really speaks to our, even though Dolores Perida's piece was written, uh, you know, uh, late 80s, I really feel that it's still relevant today and it still speaks to our students. And You're talking about you know, beautiful I, uh, señoritas. Uh, uh, beautiful señoritas and also um, uh, botanica. I, I, I directed that play. Uh, that was one. That was the second play I directed when I was hired at HCC. I thought the first thing I'm going to do is bring in Latina writers 
and I think the year was 1991 or 92, and I, and I got in as many uh, Latinos to do it. And I also brought in poetry in that play. Also, I did um, uh, Child of the Americas by Aurora Morales because I just love that piece. And I think it speaks volumes to the way people feel we are a child of this continent and of both worlds, and we are whole and we are new and we uh, are many things. And so I, I just loved I just loved that poem. So I said, you know, that's the joy of being uh, a director. You can bring in what you want, what you feel speaks to the students, what speaks to the audience. So Magdalena, with regard to Magdalena, I love her poetry so so I said, I'm, I'm going to bring in her poetry. And, you know, I was right about that because when I had the students start working with that and how we were going to divide it up and who gets to say what lines and everything, and one of the students said, she was my teacher when I was in grammar school, and I'm so excited. And I said, well, we're going to have to make sure that she comes when she hears that we're going to be doing her poetry. And they, they got all excited, and one student says, can, and I, you know, she said, can I, can I say this is for you, Magdalene? And we got very excited. So they were, you know, just, just thrilled. The whole, the whole process of doing this piece was even more than what I had imagined. They were excited to put this on and how they were empowered by it. And they're going to be starting their own group of poems and performance and bring in their own writing. And I'm just so excited about that. Latinas con Pluma feels like a very personal piece of work. It's a reflection of you also. Could you tell us about then the worlds that you go in and out of? being Latina, being in this world? It is very personal, and many of the pieces I chose because they speak to me, and I felt that I could work with those with those pieces of being of many worlds, of being, there's one piece, too, that says that we have, you know, that we speak, now with Magdalena's one, is we can speak uh, perfect English, and I can write perfect English. And then switch to English in an elevator. In a store. On a, on a tree. Because you felt the secret shame. Of fear that someone might infer you don't speak English. Your story is funny to Mira Mira. Ah, blood is Latin. Don't speak English. Coche, coche. Comparachata. Cartoon buffoon. A dog that keeps us drowning between islands. That used to be me. Me. Lying to myself in perfect English. The Spanish language is so beautiful to my heart. When people call me Patricia, my heart melts. And I, I jump up constantly when I hear that. My, it just goes to my heart. And w- one thing what was really wonderful in the process of this, when we all started working on this, we were all uh, Jocelyn, Nata- uh, Natalie, Julissa, and all of our names. But by the end, they were calling me Patricia. We call, she was not Diana. She was Diana. She was not Jocelyn. She was Jocelyn. So we was beautiful and like I said because Patricia for me is beautiful and it's like a hug when someone calls me that the the process of this was was that as well I mean that's just one instance the language because not all Latinas speak Spanish and that's been very difficult for me over the years the fact that um that I don't speak Spanish fluently I understand it but um my my parents spoke Spanish, but not to us children. They wanted us to be, quote-unquote, successful and uh, have the language of English. 
but as I grew up, it's been a language that I've had to work at. Where do your parents come from? My parents were were born in the United States. We are Mexican-American. We are from Albuquerque, New Mexico. Even my grandparents were born in the United States in New Mexico. But, for example, when my parents were born in New Mexico, it was not even a state. It was a territory. Were you born in New Mexico? I was. I was born in New Mexico. But were you raised in New Mexico? Yes, yes. My father was in the Air Force, so we traveled around a lot. Uh, I was lucky because I got to live in California, Southern California. I got to live in Illinois and even Australia for a few years uh, when I was growing up and I was a teenager. So I've really, I'm an Air Force brat. I traveled around. And that and that is why I think I, I, I felt like I lost my New Mexico heritage and so it was through my college years that I, I felt the need to gain it back. And so there's the last poem there at the end that says, I take it back. I, 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 everything that I lost, I, I take it back, and I'm, and I'm proud of it now. It's beautiful because obviously you feel it as personal. So did the people yeah. on stage feel it as personal. And so did the audience feel it as personal. That makes me cry because um, for something, this is the most important piece I've ever done because, like I said, it is my own work. You know, I can stage a play by everyone else's words, and those were not my words up there. Those were the words of Latina writers. And a, a, good, a good friend of mine, Alberto Sandoval, Professor Emeritus at Mount Holyoke, who was a professor of mine, and he's, he's guided and inspired and encouraged me all these years, and he was there that night, and he has told me, why don't you write? And I said, oh, I would write. I, I have a lot of things to say, but I, there's a lot of wonderful writing out there already. Let's hear what everybody has to say. Let's hear what they have said. Many of them, these writers, they speak to me. They touch me. I, I want to celebrate them. I'll, I'll write when it's time for me to write, but I'm, I'm happy, good with celebrating the writers who have come before me. I'm, I'm okay with that. They've said it. Let's talk about music. You brought music into this also. And yes. it was very powerful. It was the, the lilting guitar, the singer, uh, Diana, yes. Uh, yes. Diana Alvarez, who, when she sang Volver, I thought I, I was going to lose it. Um, but then when you had Julissa Rodriguez, Puerto Dominicana, and Irene yeah. playing the, the congas, that also, that just stirred in me. And it, But I saw it, it rippled throughout the audience. Well, how did you make the decision to include songs and music? You know, I believe I believe wholeheartedly in all the arts coming together to create one piece. I, I love music and I incorporated it, I incorporate it in almost everything I do because it's just so powerful. So I had art, music, conga, sounding, beat, rhythm, were all, all those senses. Could you tell us a little bit about the exhibit you had that yeah, night? Yeah, the, uh, the, the art exhibit out in the lobby was uh, Abuelas de Holyoke, Grandmothers of Holyoke, and, it, and, and I loved it. I thought it was beautiful. It was so real. It was um, a collection of photographs where the people had, had written about their grandmothers. And for me, my grandmother is the most beautiful person in the whole world that ever existed from the beginning of time. So my grandmother was not obviously one of one of those picture one of those pictures there, but she's she lives in my heart. So that exhibit spoke to me, and so I thought let's let's include this. 
let's have this in the lobby so people can um, experience this, talk about this, and also some of the very few pieces in my in my show were about grandmothers, and so that was our transition into some of the other pieces. I wanted a community event. I wanted the Latino community to come out and be touched by what touches me, and it worked. I was really, really really, really pleased by, by everything. Patricia Sandoval, thank you so much for providing a space to have all these Latina voices and emotions be uttered and be felt, be amplified. That is Diana Alvarez singing Usted by the Mexican composer Armando Manzanero. Wow, what an evening that was at Holyoke Community College. Thank you to Professor Sandoval and everyone who was part of that magical evening. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be back with Larry Hutt. Good morning, Larry. Good morning, Ty. How are you doing? I'm okay. Monty Palmante gave me a great idea to start this conversation. Good, if you weren't worried enough about how things are going with Donald Trump's presidency, and that is such a hard phrase to utter, what else do we have to worry about? Well, I'm, I'm here to tell you that of all the threats that uh, the Trump administration is aiming at us, the one that I feel directly is the threat to arts funding. And if you don't think this affects you, well, think again, because where, where do these movies come from that you want to see? And I'm not talking about Hollywood movies, but they'll, they'll probably get funded because Where do commercial. those movies come from? They're brought by the stork? <laughs> They're delivered out of the sky. For another day. Well, there's a lot of Continue. ways that the documentaries get funded, and also a lot of the feature films, too, because they have to start somewhere, and people, uh, as artists, have to make a living. So they, the traditional way is through grants, and there's two big granting agencies at the federal level. It's the National Endowment for the Arts and the National Endowment for the Humanities. And do you think that they've ever been attacked by conservative Republican administrations? Oh, yeah, they have before. They they've have been. been. Sure. Yeah, I remember uh, Karen Finley and the, the chocolate. She covered herself in chocolate. I remember a guy <laughs> named Serrano. And Serrano, right. They, I don't know if I can even say the name of his. Yeah, uh, blank, blank Christ. Blank right? Christ. Yeah. Um, so, 1980s. You know, so this is always comes up as an excuse to cut arts funding. And now the Trump administration has already said they're looking at cutting the National Endowment for the Arts and National Endowment for the Humanities. Now, what does that mean to the, to the average person? Well, one thing people probably don't know is that there are also more than 50 state humanities councils. Well, there are 50 states, and then there's Guam and, and Puerto Rico, uh, and then maybe some other the other territories have them as well. And these are the places that supply the seed funding to get projects started. And not only documentaries, but also theater groups, workshops, discussions, any type of, uh, say, library exhibits, museum exhibits, that particularly ones that have uh, discussions with them. So a lot of the things that are sort of part of, I wouldn't want to say left of center, but sort of political discourse, an open-minded political discourse with some background and history to it, comes from federal funding augmented by the states. So at the state level, it's not only federal funding, but a lot of that money is essential. And it's analogous to Planned Parenthood, for example, where all their funding wouldn't be wiped out if the feds went away, but it's a big chunk of it, and it's what you use, it's the central piece, and then people build their funding around it. So in the arts, if the feds step out of the arts altogether, you're going to see a big sea change in 
the way people make their living doing art. What are some movies, some documentaries that have been made thanks in part to some funding? Well, I can go back in, in time to some of the classic ones, like Sherman's March, which is a famous film by Ross McElwee, uh, ostensibly about Sherman's March to the sea in, in the Civil War, but McElwee actually turned it into a film about his own problems with his girlfriends. Uh, and as he as he went back into the South and went from place to place, and he used funding that he had gotten for as a proposal for a film on on uh, Tecumseh, William Tecumseh Sherman to make a film about himself. But that was arts funding, and it's it's a famous film because he didn't actually complete the film he intended to do, but it became became a much better film, and it actually landed him a professorship at Harvard. He did very well by not spending the grants money correctly. That's a famous example. Uh, my erstwhile partner Ken Burns film. Civil War, the one the film that made him famous, uh, that was his seventh or eighth major film by the time he got around to. All the other ones have been funded by the National Endowment for the Humanities, and most of my major films have been funded by the National Endowment for the Humanities and also by the National Endowment for the Arts. Uh, we did a film called Tell Me Something I Can't Forget with the poet Pat Schneider from Amherst. You might know who runs uh, wonderful writing groups, and my wife was in one of those writing groups and heard about a group that Pat was hosting or directing or facilitating in Chicopee, with women mostly uh, who were receiving federal benefits of some kind, like welfare. And this writing group was pulling them out of poverty. Several of the women from that group, this is from now about 15, 20 years ago, um, and went out to graduate school. One of them got an MFA uh, from their writing workshop. So we made a film on this, and it got supported by the National Endowment for the Arts. What's happened in the last few years, I, I looked at the funding this morning to see where we were at. There was a huge peak in funding in the 70s. Well, who was president then, Carter was president, and we had a lot of money in the arts. And it's been going up and down since then, but now it's, it's pretty low. It's about $147 million a year for the National Endowment for the Arts and about $150 million a year for the National Endowment for the Humanities. Okay, that, I understand. I, I, I believe that's low, but that sounds like a lot of money. So how does It's not a lot of money. Well, if you, well, first of all, just think about that all that money is not just for film. So this is my area, but maybe 10% of it is for film, right? And the rest of it is for all, all other kinds of arts and museum support. That money, which you try to do the math of our trillion dollar budgets, is one or something like that. It's, it's, it's a drop in the bucket. So it has nothing to do with whether this is costing us, costing the taxpayers anything. It has to do with the way the conservatives perceive what their money is being used for. And it has a multiplier effect. And I actually have to agree with them. It's, the arts are very powerful. And if you spend a very tiny amount of their budget on a film that influences people, and it influences them in a way that the conservative government doesn't like, then that is a very powerful thing for them to say. It's a very powerful message for them to say that we're going to cut off your funding. Uh, when Mitt Romney, the former governor of Massachusetts, ran for the presidency in 20. 12, he said he didn't like Big Bird and he was going to get rid of all of that. Yeah. So the budget you're talking about is also for public Well, some of it goes to public, programs. yeah. Now, public television is not entirely funded by the feds. There's the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, which is, and that is, uh, the president of that is a federal, is a uh, uh, executive branch appointee. Uh, so it goes back and forth. But all these years since it's been started in the, in the early 70s, it has never been cut, although there's been threats all along. And the general wisdom about why these things have not been cut is because the wives, remember most of Congress is male, right? It's their wives who are on the boards of the museums, on the boards of the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, 
And they, these are their pet projects. This is their arts. It's a tradition, traditional way for the women in the upper crust, in the, in the 1%, to behave on a day-to-day basis. The women who lunch, or what they're doing <laughs> when they're not lunching is they're on the boards of arts organizations, museums. They're doing good works. And their husbands are told by them, traditionally, don't cut my projects. And up till now, that's exactly, actually is what kept the arts alive. I'm but sure we'll get, wives, we'll get lots of letters on this one. But now most of the wives are the wives of very uh, of a fringe Congress people. Well, this is a, it's a good question. Um, I don't, you know, nobody knows whether all these things are going to be cut. In the past, there has been such an outcry that they haven't cut it. And also, it's such a tiny amount of money that it's a rounding error, so people don't usually bother with it. But I think the politics are so toxic now, it is possible. So what happens when there's no more federal funding, which really affects the state funding for the arts? In the documentary world, what you already have seen happening for a while is crowdfunding. Kickstarter. Uh, there's a, plenty of other sites, Indiegogo, for example. But that changes the nature of how films are made. And you could argue, you could argue, well, if you can't get several hundred people to support your film, maybe it shouldn't be made. But I think that's that doesn't really hold water as an argument. You said something that a crowdfunding influences the way a film is made. Can you give us an example? Well, you have to be able to come up with an idea that you think a lot of your friends will support, as opposed to an idea that maybe will be supported by a group of academics or people who have a, uh, a political point of view that they share with you as opposed to two or 300 people who are putting in substantial amounts of money in some cases because either they like you or they share a vision that you have for this film. It's a very different way of going at it. Plus, the budgets are going to be much, much smaller, which means that it's hard for the artist or the filmmaker to make a living at it, which means they'll make fewer films or spend longer making it, maybe less likely to get a film that's topical out on time. Mm-hmm. Maybe one in 10 films that are competitive, serious films that can get, can get through the process in the first place. And that, that percentage has been going down for a, a long time. My, my fear is if the funding is cut for at the federal level for the arts, then you're going to see a, lo- a scramble in a long time before these places can pick up and figure out how to get enough money to survive at all. And it will have a ripple effect through not only the, the public institutions and the, and the museums and the libraries, but right down to the school level. And if people do not see that they have a possibility of a career in the arts, then people will even be, will be questioning arts programs and music programs in the schools even more than they do. Basically, it comes, also comes down to an issue of the First Amendment, freedom of expression. Right. Well, in a funny way, it does, because I guess it's the golden rule. You know, the person who has the gold makes the rules, and if you do not, do not have the gold, you not, won't be able to get that message out. Uh, we will always have artists. We always have people who are, this is their calling. I think we might have fewer people who can make, make a living at it, and the United States for a long time has recognized that the arts are important and put federal money into it, your tax dollars into it. And if we stop doing that, I think we're sending out a very negative message. Thanks for bringing this subject up, Larry. Thank you, Natalia. See you next time. Thank you, Monty. Thank you so much for tuning in this morning. And Bayaco Muñoz will be back next Saturday at 10 a.m. And now we're going to be sung out by Luis Miguel, a Mexican singer singing his version of Usted. And this is a song, by the way, that people in their late 70s or 80s, they grew up with this. And then it got passed on to people of my generation and people in my generation passed it on 
to the people who follow them. So when Diana Alvarez played that song at Holyoke Community College the other day, a lot of people in the audience of different generations could sing along. That's another reason why that was such a magical evening. I hope you love the song, and I hope you have a beautiful day. Es la culpable de todas mis angustias y todos mis quebrantos. Usted llenó mi vida de dulces inquietudes y amargos desencantos. Su amor es como un grito que llevo aquí en mi alma. Y aquí en mi corazón Y soy aunque no quiera Esclavo de sus ojos Juguete de su amor No juegue con mis penas Ni con mis sentimientos Que es lo único que tengo Es mi esperanza, mi última esperanza, comprenda de una vez, usted me desespera, me mata, me enloquece, y hasta la vida llena por vencer el miedo de besarla. This is Vaya Con Munoz with Natalia Munoz on 96.9 WHMP.